there was a big government website called healthcare.gov, the, the Housing and Human Services Department. They hired an army of programmers, and uh, when it went live, it was a disaster. So the Housing and Human Services people went to Silicon Valley and got some agilists who were able to get it working enough to get it through that enrollment period. And then it was completely rewritten. And by the time the next enrollment period came around, it worked great. And the team that rewrote it consisted of 10 people. So the question is, if you can get that kind of results from the Scrum framework, why do you need to scale? Welcome to the Less Matters podcast. This is a podcast not just for those people interested in large-scale Scrum, oh no. This is a podcast for anybody who wants to know how to make single or multi-team agile work in any product-led or project-driven organisation. I'm Ben Maynard. And with over a decade of experience leading Agile in organisations both huge and small, I am uniquely placed to interview some of the best and brightest minds on topics that will help you be the best Agile practitioner you could possibly hope to be. And in this episode, I'm joined by Fred Fowler. This is episode three of three with Fred. So to wrap up our little mini-series, we spoke about topics like product owners not wanting million-dollar solutions to $10,000 problems, We speak about Obamacare, what a disaster it was when it first came out, the website that is, and how they fixed it. And we also talked about the importance of a common definition of dumb. So, I'll step out the way and let Ben take over. Ben, it's over to you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whatever it is where you are, welcome to my little podcast. And we are joined, we are by, don't know what happened to my mouth then, by Fred Fowler. Uh, for our third and final conversation on scrumptious things. Fred, welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Nice to see you again. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, one thing I think we need to sort out is our, our levels of personal hygiene because this is the third episode and we're still wearing exactly the same clothes. Well, I, I have done some laundry in between, but anyway, enough of that. <laughs> this is one of my favorite shirts. I, mean, I like colorful shirts. A nice so shirt. This is... You know, pink, purple, and uh, red. If I had known, I would have cracked out the tie-dye. Maybe <laughs> when we get you back for number four, I'll, I'll get my tie-dye out. I've got a long history of wearing tie-dye. Whenever I do a course, and the course, one of the days of the course lands on a Thursday, is tie-dye Thursday. And I will always wear tie-dye on a Thursday. Very good, course. very good, yeah. And everyone thinks I'm uh, having a joke, and I don't mean it. And I turned up in tie-dye and I was like, oh, no, you actually meant it. You were actually, actually wearing tie-dye. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I dressed up like a dinosaur for the end of one of my courses before Christmas. That was good fun. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm all, I love a bit of fancy dress today, this morning. And at the time of recording, this is uh, in January, went out on LinkedIn. I might put a link in here. You know, I cloned myself as well. I didn't change, though. I was wearing mm. the same clothes, but I had five Bens all talking to each other. It was wow. just a sight to behold. Yeah, and the converse level, of the, the quality of the conversation didn't increase. Just mm. as a, just as superb as the conversation we're going to have now, Fred, Very which good. is around. I'm looking down at the notes I didn't write <laughs> around uh, less and sc- scaling Scrum, and That's you. Right. 
can you remember what you said at the end of the last episode? Oh, well, um, I, I would very much like to talk to you about the whole issue of scaling, because that's, of course, very controversial in the community. There are like four or five different uh, strategies for, for scaling. Uh, less is one of them. Uh, Nexus is another. And then you have Safe and you have Scrum at Scale. And you yeah. also have Dads. And um, there are probably some others I can't remember. But yeah, well, all- Dad, Dad went to the dark side, didn't it? Yeah, I don't got know. got bought by PMI. <laughs> and there's also Unfix now. Okay, okay, well. By Jürgen Appello. Unfix is not... Yeah, why would you want to unfix something? Yeah. Like, oh, it's fixed. What we need to do is unfix it. Well, maybe it's because some of these other things really are the opposite of what their names are. Not to mention any names. Yeah. So maybe he thinks everybody thinks it's the opposite. <laughs> so <laughs> unfix, really, we're going to fix yeah. it. So perhaps that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, dad is not my father. Anyway, um, <laughs> so it's, not my, it's, not my, it's not the opposite. It's not my mum either. Um, so uh, less and scrum and scaling. Just to start off a 10, one of the things that Craig Lama is very famous for starting all of his courses for, and I think that many other large-scale scrum trainers also start their courses with this same uh, script, which is around uh, uh, multi-site, offshore uh, scaling. Don't do it, is, is the opening gambit. If you can avoid doing it, don't do it, which is pithy, but not practically useful i know i know and actually that was going to be my initial question to you which is you know why scale now i believe that scaling is important in the right context Mm. but let me just point out a couple of facts from history one of the most famous examples of the scrum framework proving to be very valuable was the so-called Project Sentinel back in the 1990s. That's when the FBI tried to consolidate Mm. all of its databases so that no office would fail to detect a problem that some other office knew about. The example had to do with the September 11th attacks. The Phoenix, Arizona FBI offices knew about these, uh, these, these Arab gentlemen who were taking flying lessons but not trying to learn how to land. But then they ended up in Boston, got on the airplanes in, at Logan Airport in Boston, and the Boston FBI didn't know a thing about it. So uh, Project Sentinel was created in order to unify all the information so that no office would fail to detect a problem that somebody else in the FBI knew about. Yeah. So anyway, what happened was the FBI hired a very famous defense contractor to write the software to do it. And they had a billion, uh, $450 million budget in two years. And the defense contractor hired 200 developers and got to work. And after 18 months, the contract went back. The, the FBI says, well, we've got like two of the five modules working, sort of. <laughs> uh, and we're kind of running out of time and running out of money. So we need more time. We need more money. And I, as a taxpayer, I say I'm very grateful because the FBI told them no. And the FBI hired some 
Agilists, who then laid off 180 of those 200 programmers and got to work using the Scrum framework, and they delivered the entire solution working properly five months later. So if you do the math, that's a 1,500% improvement. And they basically got this huge project done with just 20 people. Okay, now that's one example. Example number two, there was a big government website called healthcare.gov. Yeah. It was uh, the so-called Obamacare website. And again, the uh, you know the, the Housing and Human Services Department hired this big development company to put it all together. They hired an army of programmers. And uh, when it went live, it was a disaster. Didn't work at all. So the Housing and Human Services people went to Silicon Valley and got some agilists who were able to get it working enough to get it through that enrollment period. And then Mm. it was completely rewritten. And by the time the next enrollment period came around, it worked great. Mm -hmm. And the team that rewrote it consisted of 10 people. So the question is, if you can get that kind of results from the Scrum framework, why do you need to scale? Now, I want to see how many reasons we can list. Okay. Do you want to take it? We'll take it in turns, if you like. Reasons why why organizations might want to scale up. When we say scale up, we mean get more teams right. working on delivering the same product right. at the same time. Right. Okay. I know of one reason, but why don't you go ahead? Gone. No, when can you start? Reason number one. Okay. Reason number one is simply to get a result more quickly. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, according to the Scrum framework, one team of people can create any product. You say, well, how can mm-hmm. that, how's that possible? Well, let's say, what's the most complicated problem you could think of? How about Microsoft Word? It's pretty complicated. Can one team create Microsoft Word? The answer is yes, given enough time. Because as as sprints progress, the technical challenges may change, but the team can change its membership. You know, if if you start off with a team of Java people and then halfway through you realize you need to get a, a hold of some database f- folks, well, you can add database people to the team. You can take the Java people away, not need it anymore. So a team can evolve as the product evolves, and there's literally no product that a single team cannot create given enough time. Yeah, okay. And so the, the reason to scale is that get enough time part. If you want something more quickly than one team can produce it, then you need to get more more hands on it. So that that's the one reason I know of. Now, do you know some other reasons? I'm very curious. I would say, uh, I mean, time's so broad. I'm trying to think of one which isn't necessarily down to uh I will go a little bit tangential and say poor development practices. Poor development practices. That's a reason to say. Poor development practices. Yeah. So you've got a team or a couple of teams that are writing software, which needs to be rewritten a lot, refactored. Okay. The design isn't very good. There's no test automation. There's no automatic validation of previously okay. articulated acceptance criteria. And so as a consequence, and this is still related to time in a way, then what they say is, well, we need to be producing more stuff. Uh, these teams are already working really hard. So we need more teams working really hard to produce more stuff. And then they come and pile on more, more crap on, t- on top of the crap so you go slower. So then they say, well, we need more teams. We need more money and we need extra teams to then clean up some other crap as well. And so we continue into the money pit. Well, that, that's true. That is a reason why some companies scale, but I wouldn't argue that that's a good reason. <laughs> Would you? No, 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 not a good reason at all. Um, <laughs> but but a reason all the same. I never said they had to be good. 
Uh, that's true. And, you uh, know, that's so common. Or did I? Or did I? Did I say it had to be good? All right. What's that? So what's, what's another reason then, Fred? Why, why would people want to scale? Well, I, I only am interested in the good reasons because I've seen so many bad reasons. <laughs> and they all boil down to the idea that if a hundred people are not getting the job done, then you add another hundred people. Yeah. And what they don't understand is the same reason why the, the, the Project Sentinel folks, those 200 developers, didn't get anything done. It's because they were poorly organized. Mm-hmm. And if you have a poorly organized situation and you add more people to it, it's just going to become even more disorganized. So Yeah. And so this is then, if you think about it from a, a less perspective, when you, what does less put in place to try and deal with these situations? I mean, one thing that I don't think that some people are aware of is the level to which uh, technical excellence, like good development practices, comes into play when using or looking to use large-scale Scrum. I would go so far to say that unless you are working on high levels of technical excellence and you have multiple teams trying to use Scrum and you look at less and say, ah, maybe less is something that we can use to help us uh, be happier and more productive and get more value out of it all in a more safe, repeatable manner. If you haven't got the development practices in place, then it ain't going to happen. That's kind of the ground zero. That's, That's the starting point which I don't think many people really get about less. Yeah, if you if you have a bunch of mediocre people trying to do something and they're not being very successful, adding more mediocre people to the mix is not going to make it better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting practices which you know, less espouses, which I'm, I'm a huge fan of, which organizations need to work towards. Okay. And by working towards them, then what they also do with less is that their definition of done becomes stronger. I mean, in the previous episode, you had a lovely articulation of what the definition of done was, which was something along the lines of nothing else needs to be done to it technically once it's in the hands of the customers or once it's kind of gone over the the finishing line, as it were. But when you're working at scale, often teams have very uh, narrow team-centric definitions of done. And what less espouses is to have one shared common definition of done, Mm -hmm. which all teams have to meet. And what that means is if you are working from trunk, for example, or you're using certain engineering practices, then in order to meet that definition of done, then people who need to grow and learn need to grow and learn. And that's why another thing about less that makes it work when you're trying to have multiple teams all work on product delivery is that it gives you a great learning environment, which may then make you slower in the short term, but faster in the long run. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it's very important to have a common definition of done, because if you don't, then basically you can have one team say, well, we did our job and we can't give it to the customer because those idiots over there didn't do their job. And you end up with all this finger pointing. Mm. And what's important to them is who's to blame. What should be important is, okay, how do we get something into the customer's hands that's valuable? And I think this is then the the other, this is one of the things that I, I really like about less and its approach to having more teams work together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This isn't standard less stuff, but I like it because you can plug it into a broader product approach. I, I very much see less as the engine. I would, and even Scrum as the engine. Scrum and less are great for making great teams. They're great for getting that synchronization, that alignment. It's mm-hmm. great for getting people talking. It's great for improving. But when it comes to actually making sure you're making good product bets, 
and the research you have to go through to make sure that that's happening. I think that, that that's what I love about less and Scrum is it plugs it, it can plug in, and you can you can wrap a, you can wrap something around it, which is very light, which make, helps make sure that the product owner can maximize the value. And that's what I like because less says have a single product backlog. Yeah, you have have make sure you have needs to be solved you know, in in a in a in a clear place, which you can relatively rank, prioritize, order against each other. And if you haven't got that single backlog for your product, then you can't effectively reprioritize your work because you don't know what's what's where. How do you know if what you're prioritizing here is more or less important, valuable than the thing over here? You end up paying people to bring all that together into some lovely management report. Yeah. And before you know it, you're going incredibly slow and not actually delivering the right things. Yeah, if you have more than one product backlog, that means you have more than one set of priorities. And so you end yeah. up people working at cross purposes because they're both yeah. working to different sets of priorities. And that's a total mess. A tip for anyone listening, that if you ever walk into a situation where people are saying, oh, we've got a product backlog here and then we've got a tech debt backlog here and we've got a defects backlog here the one thing i found generally people i've never had anyone argue this i don't say this straight away i make sure that they know that i'm doing this from a place of love right (laughs) compassion is that it's delivering the message that the reason you've got so many backlogs is because you don't you can't get together and prioritize can you when you try and get together and prioritize and figure out how you apportion your You've got a hundred dollars to spend each sprint, mm-hmm. and how you apportion that hundred dollars between these different elements, you haven't been able to do that, have you? So what you've said is, let's have separate backlogs. And nine times out of ten, well, so far I found a hundred percent of the time, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, basically that's it. Yeah, that's why we got separate backlogs. Yeah, and you know what? You don't want business people making technical decisions. I mean, how many times have we heard from developers, well, this stupid guy wants me to write it this way, and that's the hard way, and I can solve the problem much easier doing it that way, but he's telling me what he wants me to do. You don't want a business person making technical decisions. Likewise, you don't want technical people making business decisions. And, you know, those multiple backlogs, basically, if there's no clear sets of priorities, then the people who are actually making the priority decisions are the technical people. They're choosing which one of these things they want to do. And you know what? They're making decisions about how to spend money, how to spend their mm-hmm. time. I would argue, Fred, okay. that when it comes to the technical decisions or the prioritization decisions, no one should make those decisions in isolation. Of course not. I mean, I, w- I would soften what you said a little bit and say that business people shouldn't make technical decisions, but they they can and at times should be involved in the conversations as to what the solution is and, co- and vice versa that the team should be involved in some of the conversations about what is valuable. They may not be empowered or it may not be wise to let them make, have unilateral authority to make the decisions as to what is valuable. But I think there is a huge degree of value, excuse the overuse of the word, and having them involved in some of the conversations in certain contexts. Well, that's true. You, you, I'm, I'm talking in a matter of degree rather than absolute because you don't want, yeah. you don't want business people to make technical decisions. However... They have an interest in how much that technical decision is going to cost. If they have a $5,000 problem to solve, they don't want a $50,000 solution to it. Mm -hmm. And one time, a long, long, long time ago, 
I worked for a little distribution company, and uh, the, the, you know, the the general manager who I work for says, you know, I need to keep way to keep track of of the orders we're placing from our overseas suppliers. So I took about a week and I put together a kind of a purchase order system with receivers and all that stuff and nice reports. And, and you know, I showed it to him. He says, why did you do that? All I needed was a spreadsheet. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, there ought to be give and take, but, you know, the business, the, the, the product owners should be wary of the developers trying to do a million dollar solution to a $10,000 problem. That's it. And how God love those $10,000 problems. Yeah. That's a hard enough decision to get to sometimes, isn't it? It's just actually, what is that? I mean, what, how much is this problem worth solving? Yeah. And it, like, you said, uh, like you said in the previous episode, it's a gamble. It's always a gamble. And I think, when I, Fred, if I think of, the stuff that we've covered in our hour and a quarter, I suppose, of conversations, we've covered a whole heap of ground. Yeah, yeah. and like, and even like episode one feels like a, a long time ago. I can't eat. What did we talk about in episode oh, one? Oh, it was a lot. Well, that's after what, listening to the recording. I mean, it's it's a long time ago. I was listening to a recording, and what I'll do is maybe I'll, I'll record a recap because episode one was good. Episode two was a pretty in depth conversations around things yeah. like value. And product ownership and agile manifesto. This one's been a little light tiptoe around less and scrum and scaling. Mm. And why am I recapping like this, Fred? Because, mate, our, our time is up. <laughs> our time is up. The, the dinner bell is ringing. Okay, well, that's, and, that's, uh, that's a high priority uh, decision. Well, I say the dinner bell is ringing. I've I've got to go and stand out in the rain and collect some children. Okay, well, my children. I hope you enjoy. My children. Everyone's bored of that joke now. Yeah. I'm collecting my children. Fred, um, it's been a pleasure, mate. And when are you coming to Europe then? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm actually headed to the other side of the world. Well, I'm I'm speaking to you ah. from Bangkok in Thailand. Lovely Bangkok. And uh, I'm waiting for uh, China to open its doors to foreigners again. And I probably, if, if everything goes the way I hope it does, uh, the next time I speak to you, I'll probably be speaking from Shanghai. Nice. But the wonderful thing about the internet what? is that you can be anywhere in the world, talk to anybody else. I, it's brilliant. Yeah, and I want to thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this. I've enjoyed the conversation very much. And uh, maybe. Ah, ditto. No, it's been lovely. Maybe uh, if the stars align, we can do it again sometime and continue this ongoing discussion we seem to be having. That, I would love to. I would love to. And, um, Fred, if you can just confirm to me, because you said, uh, this, by the way, this isn't me being totally serious. Um, when we before we started the conversations, you said you'd done a few interviews so uh, recently, a few kind of podcast recordings. Is that correct? Oh yes, yes, yes. I've done about yeah. eight or nine. Um, are you ha- are you happy to confirm that this one has been the best? <laughs> it's no doubt the best one I've done this year. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna use that for marketing purposes. <laughs> And just brush over the fact that I feel wounded now, but I'm not the best. Um, well, Fred, this has thank been, you very much. This has actually been the most lively, I must admit. And, uh, and you, you have a lot of – you're not the average podcast host because uh, you, you really get into this. And, of course, you're a, a less trainer. So you're coming at this from a different perspective than many others. So I've had some, uh, some, some more in-depth and detailed – technical conversations about all this with you than I have with anybody else. So please accept nice. my thanks and uh, accept my compliments too. Ah, and, and Fred, you've been a brilliant guest. I've enjoyed our exploration of these things and, and it's been, it's been, it's been a bit of adrenaline. It's been nice, mm-hmm. you know, and 
there needs to be something there. Otherwise, why are people going to listen? Yeah. By the way, one more thing. You know, we didn't even get to half of what I wanted to talk about in terms of scaled Scrum. So if you feel like... Oh, next time. Indulge, yeah, next time. Whenever we can fit it into our schedules. But uh, but anyway. Well, but, 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 but I stop recording. We'll have a little, we'll little catch-up and we'll figure out what we do. Okay. Very good. Well, again, thank you, Fred. Thank you, listeners and uh, watchers, if I've actually got around to uploading this to YouTube some point uh fred mm-hmm. any closing remarks oh just uh that scrum is the most effective way to develop any kind of product as long as people understand what it is and how it works and unfortunately it seems very <laughs> difficult for people to figure out what it is and how it works and uh, i'm hoping that yeah. somehow i can help shed some light on how all this 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 goes down so that's all, all i have to say Thank you very much, Fred. And I would end it by saying, as, a, as some great philosophers once said, be excellent to each other. And until next time, see you soon. Thank you. Ah, those fantastic philosophers, Bill and Ted. Never a truer word has been said. So that draws our time with Fred to a close. We're going to be kicking off a little extra mini-series. Extra long mini-series? Collection of topic-relevant conversations i'm not sure but basically we're going to dedicate a bit of time to talking about learning now i'm not quite sure how the next episodes will turn out whether we're going to release them in one big go or if it's all going to be a month dedicated to learning let's wait and see so be sure to stay tuned for that because i'm pretty certain jp bailey a legend in the agile and training from the back of the room world will be joining us in the next episode now i've got a little bit of time left not much so let me give a little quick update of my conversation with fred We spoke about the importance of finding the right solution for the right problem and it not costing the earth. We spoke about the criticality of technical excellence in product creation and how important it is to have a shared and common definition of dumb. We looked at some reasons why scaling might be a good idea and perhaps mine was a bit lame. Anyway, thanks for listening. It's always a pleasure. Give us a review. See you soon.